Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that uh, delves into the most important, interesting, controversial episodes in the life and history of the Roman Catholic Church. My name is Derek Taylor. I'm your host for this podcast. Welcome to all. Thank you uh, once again to all my listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing uh, uh, on uh, on YouTube, where we're set up there. Also for following us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We very much appreciate it. Please leave um, you know messages, comments. We try to get back to you as soon as we can. Um, you can also find Controversies in Church History on the web, on Facebook. We have a page. Please go like us. I have a website, uh, churchcontroversies.com is the address. Uh, go check it out. Uh, I have some other content on there. Uh, and if you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, it's free uh, after a certain period, but um, you can go to a Patreon page and donate if you like what we do, want to support us here. And uh, I'm grateful to the patrons I do have and thank everybody else for your support. I really appreciate it. Um, it helps, by the way, to be affirmed. So thank you, everybody who's reached out and let me know that what I'm doing is is uh, um, uh, is appreciated and uh, some of you think of it's important. So uh, that helps out a great deal. So um, this episode, we have the second in our series on Latinization, on the Latinization of the Eastern Rites by the Roman Church. And we talked about in the first episode, just to recap, you know, what is Latinization? Again, the accusation is sort of uh, the Roman church is this aggrandizing, imperial, imperialistic sort of power that tries to impose its customs and things on these Eastern churches. And I gave a brief history of, you know, how East and West in general came to be sort of different, have different customs, different, uh, you know, different spirituality by the year 1000. The last time, and so I talk about here is how this feeds into um, some of the first instances of what we might think of as being Latinization in a modern sense. And the thing I'm going to come back to, I'll repeat this as I go through here, is that there is some, as you'll see, there's some, I think, some truth to that claim to a certain degree. Um, but a lot of this has to do with balance of power um, considerations, both in terms of, as you'll see, Temporal rulers in the Middle Ages, but also, um, you know, as we're going to see, rival claims to authority over the church, uh, different visions of universal authority in the church. You know, the Pope in the West, uh, emperor and councils, I guess, in the East. And that'll play a big role in this as well. But I, I, as I said in the first episode, I don't think this is really the sort of imperialism people are thinking of when they use that term Latinization. I think that waits for the modern period. So let me get to the story, uh, to, to what I'm talking about here and explain why. The first real instance of, of this, of sometimes that I'm aware of, of you know, the Latin church imposing on Eastern churches, takes place in the 11th century. And if you listen to my, my episode on the Gregorian reform, remember you have the reformers who control the papacy in the, from the 1050s onwards wanting to reform the entire Western church using the papacy as the means to do that. Well, they also have uh, new allies politically in Italy, and that's the Normans in the south. Why do I mention this? Because the Normans uh, enter into Italy uh, in a big way in uh, Sicily and southern Italy in the 1050s. Why is this important? Because the Byzantines for a long time regarded pretty much all of southern Italy as part of their patrimony, even though they had not been in control of it for a long time. And so when the Normans invade Sicily and southern Italy, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. The um, Patriarch of Constantinople reaches out to Rome, try to uh, suggest an alliance against the Normans, but nothing ever came of it. I mention all this because the Normans, almost immediately when they moved into southern Italy, started to impose Western liturgical practices on their Greek subjects, Byzantine subjects, uh, including the so-called Azime. This is the Azime controversy, the fact that um, the, um, the Latin church to this day uses unleavened bread in the Eucharist. The Greeks didn't. They thought this was wrong. Um, the Latins thought it was an apostolic custom, but it doesn't seem to go back that far, nearly that far. And, um, in fact, the Byzantines, by the way, did this, um, politically because they, they actually took the Pope prisoner in 1053. So, uh, they, they, their, their in, into intervention in Italy, you know, sort of spurs a lot of this. And so you have this imposition of a foreign custom, a Latin custom on Greek. And there are a lot of Greek churches, by the way, even to this day, even ones in communion with Rome in Southern Italy, um, despite the, despite the division, 
And so in response to all this, um, Constantinople would actually shut down a bunch of Latin churches. The, uh, a, a Byzantine bishop in Bulgaria sent a letter to the bishops of Italy, urging them not to, to resist this use of unleavened bread. And in Constantinople, they retaliated against this by closing down Latin churches. There were Venetians and Genoese um, who lived, uh, merchants who lived in, uh, in, uh, in Constantinople. And this is what led and fed into eventually the, uh, the actual uh, mutual excommunication of 1054. And so you have this, uh, and you have this, by the way, this is directly tied to in some ways, not the Normans per se, but uh, the, the 1054. That's tied to the Gregorian reforms. We'll get to this in a moment, as I mentioned. Um, but you have this should be seen in the context of again by the year one by the year uh, by the second millennium you have not just different customs but different you know I don't say different doctrines but you have different theologies of the church and everything different views of authority um, and you know who has claims to jurisdiction and stuff like this I know this is kind of boring to a lot of people but um, but again these were you know uh, it, it's worth noting here that. Um, the Normans do this. It's not like the Pope's instructing them to do anything like this. They do that because they want their they want their kingdoms to have a uni- to be uniform in religion. That's that's the norm everywhere in the pre-modern world. But one thing I'll say about this is that, of course, they're trying to they are trying to appeal to the Pope, who again the papacy at this point is basically proclaiming that Roman tradition, the Church of Rome, is superior to all others. All their customs are inferior. It is saying things like that. So if you wanted to see this sort of taking that and running with it, perhaps, but it's not directly the Pope doing this. And in fact, a lot of this, a lot of what you'll talk about here in the rest of this lecture, you know, it will be kings imposing um, these types of things on their, their Byzantine or Orthodox subjects because they desired unity, not necessarily uh, the Bishop of Rome. And it depends on their circumstances because later on, um, Normans will actually, you know, get themselves crowned kings of Sicily. One of them, Roger II, is very famous for being not only tolerant, but he actually encourages Byzantine artists, um, but also Muslim artists, to settle in his territory. Um, this is, um, if you've ever heard of the Abbey of Mont Royal in, I guess, Palermo, it's this gorgeous Byzantine-style chapel. He had Byzantine artists there, so it tended to, it tended to, to come to the whim of the of monarchs and what they wanted to do a lot of times here. Having said all that, you did have a view of things like liturgy and the customs of the church as part of a total package of, you know, Rome being superior to the rest of the churches. And this comes to the fore in the, uh, in the reign of Gregory VII. Gregory VII was the, uh, he's the man for whom the Gregorian reformers were named. Uh, he's a reforming pope. And, of course, he got into a big row with the secular authorities uh, in, you know, Western Europe, the Holy Roman Emperors. And that's one thing to keep in mind here is a lot of this is a matter of reform aimed at Western society, which tends to hit um, Byzantines. It really isn't directed at them initially, although it comes to that to a certain degree in certain areas. And Gregory VII saw himself as restoring the liturgy in his time. He saw himself as restoring Roman tradition, in, uh, period. He thought, again, you know, the 10th century was a bad age for the papacy. And he was restoring it to its rightful place both vis-a-vis the secular rulers, but also the liturgy. For example, uh, he wanted to restore an offertory procession uh, for the laity in the liturgy. Don't these have worked out? Um, That's something that only happens in the 20th century with the reforms, liturgical reforms. And he also placed, I guess, the first two seasons of the Ember Days, if you know what the Ember Days are, back in their traditional places. There had been several changes introduced uh, in the Roman liturgy since the time of Charlemagne. And a lot of this, uh, he thought, was, you know, they were corruption, so he wanted to get rid of these things. And according to H.E. Cowdery, he thought, he and his contemporaries thought of liturgy was, quote, part of a state of things in the church that was by divine appointment given and unchanging, unquote. And so um, his idea was, uh, I, you know, I basically um, bound what I've handed on to, uh, handed what's been handed on to me from my successors, uh, and the, and uh, and to only intervene where there are specific errors to correct. And the sources tend to indicate his idea was to remove undue quote unquote imperial influence from the Roman liturgy. Again, all this is consistent with these reformers, these Gregorian reformers. And in particular, um, to try, there was an attempt to sort of impose this on the rest of the West, because there's a lot of liturgical diversity in Western Europe before the Council of Trent. 
And Gregory the Seventh believed that Roman tradition, every bit of it, was superior to any other Western tradition and any other church tradition, actually. And he did attempt to snuff it out, snuff out practices he thought were contrary to it uh, where he could. He urged Spanish monarchs, for example, and their bishops in Spain to replace the, the Mozarabic rite, or what was called the, the Hispanic rite. Um, you know what this is? This still exists in a couple of places in Spain today, but it's the pre, pre-Arab conquest liturgy um, that survived the Arab invasions. But because there had been the Arab, inv- Arab invasions and they'd had problems with Arianism in Spain before the Arab invasions, you know, Gregory VII thought it was being problematic, and so he, uh, he, um, he got the bishops and the uh, kings of uh, Spain to go along with this, and it was mostly, mostly uh, suppressed, never went away totally. Uh, despite all this, a lot of diversity remained. There are several different variations of rites. Certain cathedrals would have their own uses in the Middle Ages. Um, in fact, even in uh, Rome until the 13th century, most churches in the city of Rome followed different, different liturgical customs, from the papal curia, which based out of the Latin Lateran Basilica there in Rome. And in fact, the Roman Missal would only become the predominant one in Western Europe in the 13th century, in the 1200s, when the Franciscan order take a version of it and spread it across Europe and popularize it. So even if he probably wanted to, but Gregory really couldn't impose uniformity on the West, much less the East. And um, where he did put his foot down uh, about Eastern liturgies, where he talks about it, it are in uh, parts of Eastern Europe. And we'll come back to this again. This is a constant in the Middle Ages. He apparently wanted his legates and kings in places like, we'll get to Poland and other places like that in a minute, um, to impose uh, the Latin liturgy there, as over against appeals for a Slavic vernacular liturgy in places like Croatia and Bohemia. You'll recall, of course, um, St. Cyril and Methodius, you know, went to the Balkans in the Middle Ages and, you know, um, produced a vernacular liturgy there and uh, was not able to find out reading about this. But I think the reason is, of course, if you go back to the first lecture I talked about, those areas of Eastern Europe were, you know, mission territory considered both by the Byzantines and the Romans. And this may be a part of the reason why they wanted to do this to assert Rome's claim. It's also possibly because, you know, these Slavic peoples, um, um, they're, 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 they're only recently, recently converted since the ninth century, um, recently as compared to Rome. I say this because, uh, Greek Byzantine liturgies took place in Rome, uh, in the following century with no, no interference from the, from, uh, from the popes. And so we presume that, uh, there was no interference, um, by Gregory the seventh either. And he never made any complaints about this, uh, cause there were Greeks living in Rome. Um, but he also was in contact, and we'll come, we'll come back to this in a moment, he was also in contact with the Church of Armenia. And uh, he made no, no demand upon them to adopt Latin practices. He wrote letters to them. So there was some contact with these other Eastern churches, and there's nothing there that would suggest he wanted to impose his customs on them in, in this regard. The big thing they want to impose, of course, is, is the leadership and the headship of the Roman church, though it's clearly related. So one of the things that begins to change all this, of course, is the Crusades for a lot of different reasons. I mentioned you know, the Schism of 1054 and mutual excommunication, which really isn't. Uh, there's still plenty of contact between uh, Western and Eastern churches. Uh, and in fact, the First Crusade, if you don't know, uh, begins because the uh, Byzantine Emperor Alexios II calls to on Western aid, uh, which provides the impetus for uh, the First Crusade. And um, this, of course, lead to, uh, you know, despite a lot of cultural difference and mutual suspicion, on the Crusaders coming to the Holy Lands, being given aid by Alexios, and eventually, you know, taking parts of the Holy Land. And I should say there was lots of fighting, lots of cultural difference and mutual suspicion, um, just a lot of just distrust uh, between East and West. Despite all this, um, the relationship between the Crusader kingdoms and the Byzantine empires could oftentimes be cordial. I believe several Byzantine princes were married uh, into the Latin, uh, kingdom of Jer- Latin king of Jerusalem. So it wasn't all totally at odds, but they really were I mean, at this point. I should make that the default is kind of, uh, it's kind of, um, you know, suspicion because they are so different, because they seem so different from each other in, uh, in so many regards. 
And yet, again, in the Holy Land, especially when we're talking about Crusader kingdoms, you have to remember the Crusaders, when they, when they uh, took control of these lands, they were really only there to protect holy sites and pilgrims. They really didn't have a lot of manpower to govern these places. So they were generally tolerant of most of their subjects. Orthodox to a certain degree, we'll get into this in a second, they did impose the Latin hierarchy on these places, but uh, they didn't really, didn't, as far as I know, interfere with their, uh, um, their rights or religious practices. Uh, and that goes for their Muslim subjects. And again, they kind of had to, they didn't have any choice. They couldn't make people mad that way. They did, of course, however, install uh, a Latin hierarchy wherever they went when they took over uh, Byzantine territories. Um, there is to this day a Latin patriarch in uh, Jerusalem. And um, and part of this is probably because Rome didn't see Byzantines as heretics. They saw them as schismatics who wouldn't submit to Rome. Um, so that's probably why they didn't tamper with their rights. They didn't think there was anything wrong with them. The reason why they uh, tempered with the structure is, well, two reasons. One, part of the you know schism is they refused you know Roman authority. But also Roman canon law, um, Roman canon law, um, uh, stipulated there couldn't be two bishops for us for for the same territory, so wherever they went, uh, you know, Latin kings or conquered or acquired former Byzantine lands, they would install a Latin bishop and abolish the Greek um, because it forbade more than one. They did uh, did sometimes, however, provide things like vicars for you know uh, Byzantine subjects, or even in the Holy Land. I know they sometimes provided coadjutor bishops if the population was large enough. Though in the Holy Land, uh, in places like the Kingdom of Jerusalem. These offices basically went to ethnic Syrians rather than Byzantine Greeks, uh, probably because of the mutual suspicion they had with them. Um, and so you'd also have a little bit of Latinization going on with other Christians in the Middle East. And this is a, uh, some people don't really know about. This is kind of very interesting. Most people don't know one of the key groups that was um, um, a key allies for the Crusaders in the First Crusade and their success uh, were Armenian Christians. Um, who were, of course, subject to you know, Turkish rule and Islamic government. They welcomed the Crusaders at places like Antioch. Um, and uh, uh, Armenian, uh, Armenians living inside Antioch were actually crucial for letting the Crusaders in and take that city. Uh, if you don't know, the Church of Armenia is one of the most ancient churches uh, in, in all of Christendom. Um, one of the first nations to adopt Christianity as a whole. They welcomed the Crusaders. And they would come into communion with Rome uh, during the Crusades and briefly later on as well. And they had a lot of similar, and it's interesting to note here, they had a lot of similarities with the Crusaders as compared to, I mean, social background, by the way, as compared to the Byzantines. Remember, the Byzantines, they rule from Constantinople. It's the wealthiest, most sophisticated Christian city in the world. It's a mostly civilian type of government. And so they kind of look down their noses at these crusaders with these big, burly Westerners with swords. They're feudal lomobin. They're basically just, you know, warlords. Whereas uh, the Armenians are kind of more socially like, like the uh, Western crusaders. They also um, have a sort of semi-feudal type of social order there where you have, you know, leading families um, that you know, govern their society without much regard to a centralized authority like you have in Byzantium. And in fact, uh, the Armenians will marry into most of the leading families in the Crusader states. So you'll have several, what are sometimes called Frankish, that's the general term for Crusaders, French from Western Europe, and Frankish Armenian dynasties um, emerging in these states because of the, the similarities. Um, and so Latin influence there is mostly benign. In fact, this is partly because there are already similarities between the Latin church and the Armenian church. Again, one of them is the Armenian church is more or less autonomous vis-a-vis -vis the state, like the Latin church, unlike the Byzantine, which is more or less subordinate to the emperor. Um, its personnel in the Armenian church was drawn from their feudal nobility, much like the Latin. In terms of actual practice, Armenians hold Easter on the same date as the Latins. Um, they use certain vestments that resemble the Latin. But most importantly, and this is the biggest thing that probably would have attracted Latin Christians, is that um, they used unleavened bread in their Eucharist too, something that the Byzantines denounced both Latin and Armenians for. And in fact, in the previous centuries, the Byzantine church had tried to force um, leavened bread on the Armenians unsuccessfully. Ah, so you have the Byzantines engaging in... Uh, Byzantinization, or I guess we can say this way. So, again, as part of this, this, uh, um, both of these, my point about the Byzantines and the Latins, they both have a sort of 
ecclesiastical universalism in mind. Um, and you do have influence here uh, with the Armenians. By the 14th century, Armenian bishops have adopted the Latin mitre for their headdress. And in fact, to this day, if, if you go and look online, you can find this, the, both the Orthodox uh, Armenian Church, but also the Catholic Armenian Church, retains uh, certain prayers uh, from the classical Roman light. Um, the uh, prayers at the foot of the altar at the beginning of the, uh, this is the Utica May, this is Psalm 42, if you know the old Roman rite, the TLM. Uh, and the last gospel uh, is also included in the Armenian rite to this day. So you have a, a, a Latinization here. It seems more about the sort of, there's actually some mutual back and forth. Uh, it's not necessarily imposed. And by the way, there's, you know, they didn't share a common language, the Armenians and the Latins. They got along, they didn't, they, they still had fights, don't get me wrong. They were, they were still fighting, you'd have some betrayals and stuff like that, it's warfare. But for the most part, they got along a lot better than they did with the, the, the Byzantines. And I think that's because they weren't, you know, the Armenians weren't a rival for authority in terms of the universal church. The other group, of course, who welcomes Christians who welcome, well, not of course, if you don't know this, but who welcomes the Crusaders when they come to the Holy Land uh, are the Maronites. Um, these are West Syrian Christians. Um, West Syriac means Aramaic uh, liturgy, languages effectively, are peoples from Syria who fled uh, to the mountains of Lebanon after the Arab conquests in the 7th century. And over time, they basically became a distinct people. I'm not going to go into this here. It's very hotly debated. Um, there's debate about the origins of the Maronite church, whether or not it was always a patriarchy, lots of things. I'm going to do this as minimally as possible and try to avoid that. What I want to talk about here is they, they too, uh, like the Armenians, came to welcome the Crusaders. They too, like the, like the uh, Armenians, are thought to have had a more or less feudal social structure. And so there was, a, there was more ease of, of uh, there seems to have been a lot more affinity with uh, the Latins for this reason. According to a Latin chronicler of the Crusades who lived in Jerusalem during that time, William of Tyre, according to him, he says the Maronites gave their formal submission to Rome in 1182, although there are some indications in the sources this may have happened earlier. He also makes a claim, I mention, mention it here, does William of Tyre, the, that the, uh, the Maronites had been, mon I think I'm going to butcher this, uh, monothelites, uh, a 7th century heresy which denied the idea that it's, monothelites means one will, and it was a compromise um, formula that, um, again, this is, goes back to the, the battles about the Council of Chalcedon, whether Christ had two natures and therefore two wills. And um, he accuses them of holding this heresy. And it's worth mentioning, worth mentioning, by the way, Maronite historians absolutely deny this. <laughs> I don't want to get into it, but they strongly protest this. They think he was mistaken. But I mention this because you will have some Latinization of the Maronites, uh, Maronites by, uh, by uh, popes during the Crusades, which seems to be much more intentional than that of the Armenians. Uh, pope Innocent III in the early part of the 13th century um, basically required that the Maronites wear, do things like wear Latin vestments um, and some, some other mostly sort of minor uh, things, different types of chalice they had to use, had to be Roman. Um, does not prescribe to them, by the way, the use of unleavened bread. So that wasn't in, an imposition. They did basically, ha they basically had to agree that Christ had two wills, which as far as my understanding, that is the definition of the Council of Chalcedon. And um, although this Latinization was apparent, it wasn't very widespread and it won't be as intense. There will be a much more intense Latinization of the Maronite liturgy and some of its customs later on. It's worth mentioning, by the way, the difference. You know, if you're wondering why the Armenians there wasn't as uh, was there was more of an effort to impose on the on the Maronites. I, I'm guessing it probably was because you know the Armenians had definitely had antiquity on their side, and they maybe weren't sure, perhaps, about the origins of the Maronites, and perhaps they did actually believe what William the Tyre of Tyre had said about their apparent heresy. I don't know, but there's some difference there. But in either way, there's not really a lot of imposition. Um, so again, things are different with different situations, different with different, again, different power differences, right? The Byzantines are rivals, the Armenians and the Maronites are not. Rivals for authority, that I should say. Now, I have to mention one event uh, in this, this uh, um, episode on the Middle Ages, which is not necessarily a matter of Latinization, although it leads to it, uh, which is the, the Fourth Crusade. 
which if you don't know this, by the way, there will be a, an episode coming on this. It's one of the more lugubrious episodes in the history of the Catholic Church. And um, this is when in 1204, a crusader army meant to go capture Egypt instead turned around and went to Constantinople and conquered, con con conquered the Byzantine Empire. So let's explain how this happened real quickly. In brief, uh, the Latin conquest of Constantinople had a lot to do with politics, temporal, secular politics, particularly with Venice. Uh, the Republic of Venice had been a subject of the Byzantine Empire until I think the 9th, 10th century. And there'd been some, there'd been uh, bad, there'd been, you know, conflict between them. For example, in 1171, during a, a naval conflict with the Venetians, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel II seized the property of all the Venetians living in Constantinople and then put some 10,000 of them in prison. Um, but a decade later, a riot broke out in 1182, um, which led to the deaths of many Venetian and Genoese merchants in the, it's called the Galata area. It's where all the Italian merchants settled in Constantinople. And so this will be remembered by these people in Venice, but also the people, the Italians that lived there and who left as a result of all this. I'll come to this in a moment because you're going to have, I'll, I'll explain how this connects to the actual sacking of the city. But what happened was you had this crusade called by Innocent III, who um, called for the building of a massive army, like 20,000, I think 20,000 foot soldiers, something like this. Huge, but very expensive. And so led by Venetians, they owed the Venetian state a lot of money, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't pay um, their, their soldiers. And so what they did was um, the leader of the expedition, who was a partially blind 80-year-old doge of Venice named Enrico Dandolo, um, he was, um, well, someone came to him from Constantinople, Alexios Angelos, who was the nephew of the Byzantine emperor, Alexius III, who had displaced his father, Isaac Angelos, who was now in prison. In other words, he basically offered uh, them money if they'd come put him on the throne along with his father and get rid of his uncle. So internal Byzantine politics uh, gets into this, and they go, they, they take the deal. The crusaders go to Constantinople in 1203. They help put Alexius on the throne, and he does pay them initially. But over the next year, things begin to go wrong. Um, the presence of a big Latin army doesn't sit well with the people of Constantinople. Riots ensue. And then in early 1204, um, the Byzantines in a coup d'etat remove Alexius and put someone else on the throne. And so at this point, the Crusaders, they can't, they can't go back to Venice. They can't pay their debts. They can't go to Egypt and complete the crusade. And so they decided the only thing they could do was actually seize the city itself which they do, uh, with, by the way, the help of, so, so it's uh, believed by historians, a lot of ex-residents of the city, people who had left because of the conflicts, uh, ex-Venetian ex you know, um, merchants and stuff like this. Um, and what followed was three days of absolutely brutal uh, looting and sacking of the city, for which the Byzantines have never forgotten. Uh, this, by the way, is, marks the real schism uh, between that, that they recognize they recognize at this point they thought the latins were just devils for this reason so and to this day unfortunately you can you can find uh churches in venice saint mark's uh decorated with loot they took um from constantinople the latins would install a, Roman, a latin emperor um govern parts of greece and other parts of of the mediterranean for about almost 60 years till 1261 when um michael paleologos uh, drives them out, a uh, Byzantine, former Byzantine uh, general, if I'm not mistaken. So, long story short, um, a couple of things. Was this was this Rome's fault? There, this uh, this this happened. Uh, it's not Innocent III's fault. No. Um, when he found out, first of all, by turning by going away from the planned destination of, of uh, Egypt, all the people on the crusade incurred uh, automatic excommunication. When he found out what they were doing, Innocent III excommunicated every Venetian member of the expedition, expedition two weeks before they, uh, before they started turning to Constantinople. But he was disobeyed almost at every point. And, you know, this is Innocent III, who's one of the more powerful popes in the Middle Ages. So, but, um, and I think you have to say that politics played a, played a role in this and just things got out of hand. And so for the most part, I'm saying no. I don't think this is a result of Roman claims to authority. However, we'll say this. 
Crusading itself was an idea and practice definitely tied to the Reformed papacy. And, um, you know, combined with the Gregorian insistence on the supremacy of the Latin tradition, I guess you could argue that this made something like this possible. But I don't think you can say it caused this catastrophe, as it were. And Innocent III lamented this. He basically said, you know, how are we going to get the... uh, the the Greeks to to return to submission to Rome if we you know you know treat them like dogs and stuff like this he was pretty he was generally upset about the sack but there's nothing he could do about it and so he quickly accepts this as a fait accompli and sees an, at least an attempt to try to reconcile the Byzantines with Rome of course it doesn't happen but um, he proclaimed that those bishops that submitted to Rome those Greek ones would not need to be reconsecrated. Um, on the other hand, in many areas of Greeks under Latin control, especially by the 14th century, because there were, for a long time, you had these various different, you know, Ven- Venetians, certain French uh, dynasties in Greece and places like this. They'll control large Greek-speaking populations. A lot of them will actually go to Constantinople for their ordination. Something the papacy and the lay rulers tried to, tried to prohibit, but couldn't do it. Uh, so there was the imposition of a Latin hierarchy, as there were in other places. There was some transfer of property from the Greek to the Latin church, but not uh, not as much as you'd think. And actually, in lots of parts of Greece, the Greek church retained a lot of their property. In fact, the, the bigger um, battle came over tithes, uh, where they had to pay tithes to the Latin church, which you can imagine why they wouldn't like that. Um, but in fact, it wasn't, again, in some place, again, this is not a great thing, but the Latin government wasn't necessarily, um, you know, it wasn't a sort of, okay, now we've conquered, let's do whatever we want to the Greeks. You know, in some places there was cooperation. In some of the outlying island areas of Greece, for example, um, where there were, you know, Latin clergy were sometimes lacking, uh, Catholics would seek out Greek priests uh, for spiritual care and for the sacraments. In some other places, Greek churches actually contained two altars so that the Greek and the Latin rites can be celebrated there. Again, don't get me wrong. <laughs> this is this is a minor thing. It's a, it's a it's an outlier, but still, it was not totally a matter of imposition. And in fact, uh, there really wasn't that much Latinization. They didn't have much success anyway, insofar as they even tried. And again, there wouldn't be a lot of there wouldn't be a Latinization of their right necessarily. They grew out the Greeks because they had antiquity on their side. Nonetheless, of course, this makes it marks a turning point between the Latin and the West and the Eastern Church, if for no other reason, because up until this point, um, the Byzantine Empire had been two things, uh, the Byzantine Empire and the Orthodox Churches of the East. One, more powerful politically than any entity in Western Europe. Two, they'd been more sophisticated culturally than the West. After the sack of the empire, the, the sack of the empire in 1204, even though they re- recover it, it's going to be fatally weakened politically. And the second thing is, by the end of the Middle Ages, and we'll talk about this in a moment, uh, the West has caught up and maybe surpassed, uh, probably surpassed, uh, in cultural and intellectual sophistication, uh, the Byzantines. And again, this is about you know balance of power and stuff like this, and why things get imposed sometimes when they do. Well, sometimes. And so something to keep in mind, the change over time. We're talking about several centuries here. And so come briefly to the later Middle, uh, Middle Ages and talk about some Latinization that took place there, some things that will sound familiar to you. And here we return to the eastern part of Europe because uh, I think I mentioned this a little bit in my, my podcast, my episode on the Union of Brest, but in eastern Europe, in what is today western Ukraine, um, Galicia is the, the name of it in the Middle Ages, I guess, uh, was a part of, you know, it was a Ruthenian or a Eastern Slavic kingdom that was absorbed by the Polish kingdom in 1349. And this brought with it increasing efforts by the Polish king to reconcile the quote-unquote schismatic Ruthenians, as they called them. Ruthenians, by the way, was a catch-all for what we consider Ukrainians, Russians, Belarusians. So um, that's what they called them back in the Middle Ages. But And this was done, and again, this is one of the things here where you see some, you do see some of this um, Roman uh, universalism uh, imposing itself on the Orthodox because the Polish kings, in exchange for papal support, because they were fighting in other parts of the Baltics, they were fighting pagans. There were still pagans um, in Lithuania, for example, which is again part of their kingdom, actually. Um, 
they will, in exchange for that, replace the Orthodox hierarchy, begin to replace it with the Latin one by the 1370s, the same way it ha as happened in Greece and in Cy Cyprus. They will also me means that uh, there's so few Catholics in the areas that they, they've undertaken there that the, um, they have to impose tithes on the Orthodox population, which of course leads to problems later on. And insofar as they begin proselytizing, it comes at the expense of these, of these, of these Orthodox, these Ruthenians. So again, there is, um, again, occasional things like rebaptism or forced on, not forced, but that, that happens sometimes. They'll gain quote unquote converts. So there seems to be a crossing of a line in some places between, well, they're schismatics and they don't have to do that stuff. But then other places like, well, the, it seems to be the Slavic areas. Uh, as you can tell, because I think perhaps because they are seen to be culturally backward, perhaps. I'm not really sure. It didn't really come out from the stuff that I read. It's the sense I got of it. And of course, this, this is furthered uh, in the, um, uh, starting in the 1330s by religious orders, mendicants, Dominicans, Franciscans, who make their way into the Ukraines by the 1330s and 40s, who are, on, are also intent on, on doing mission work. They see these places as mission territory. Um, they set out to quote unquote convert the natives, the the uh, Franciscans for uh, some Franciscan um, um, what do you call them abbeys or whatever, are actually given missionary privileges, i.e., the right to baptize converts. Again, baptizing quote unquote converts from Orthodoxy. So you do have that sensibility being more strong, I think, in this area for a variety of reasons, and um, it will also happen through uh, through political means as well in 1385. Uh, Poland is joined with Lithuania uh, in a in a uh, joint kingdom. And this adds another layer of complication to this. Lithuania had been a pagan kingdom; they embraced Catholicism, uh, but it did have parts of their territory which contained a lot of Orthodox churches and and, and uh, subjects. But uh, the Lithuanians were afraid of Moscow at this point, and the allure of a, a union with Poland pushed them in the Roman camp. The first king, the king was actually the grand, the Duke of Lithuania, became King Jogaila of Poland, Lithuania. Uh, upon his, you know, becoming Catholic, demanded all of his nobles convert to Catholicism, and uh, banned intermarriage between Catholics and Orthodox. So again, this isn't totally, you know, again imposing in terms of Latinization, but there is that pressure there because of all of this. Uh, and I'll briefly mention a couple of, um, uh, a couple of, uh, one other thing to mention here. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, I guess maybe you could say it from, the, from, from an Orthodox perspective, you would see it this way, I'll put it that way. Uh, you might even be able to see the two reunion councils of the latter Middle Ages as evidence of, you know, if you wanted to see it as Latin, you know, Latinization. This is the second council of Lyon. This is Michael VIII, the emperor, who um, sent a delegation to uh, Lyon in France in 1274, and basically agrees to everything that uh, the Pope Gregory the Tenth wanted. Um, they had to, you know, accept po Pope's authority, accept the filioque, etc., etc. But there was no debate, and um, basically, when Michael the Eighth went back to Constantinople, uh, he resorted to sort of brutal measures, and he was encouraged in this, by the way, by by the popes, and. Um, and uh, Gregory the Tenth, the man who initially called the council, had been relatively more understanding of, of Orthodox problems, but his successors were not, especially Nicholas III, who was skeptical of Michael VIII's commitment to the Union, um, and he pressured him to enforce it, and Michael VIII, Paleologos, uh, demanded confessions of faith and public uh, abjurations of errors by the Orthodox. Uh, he imprisoned a bunch of people, um, you know, occasionally torturing them. And so his methods were brutal, and this cemented in the minds of the people of the Byzantine Empire the wickedness of the Union. This was a betrayal of the Orthodox faith. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, eventually, um, he reneges on it. He breaks uh, from the Union. We well, don't break on it, but eventually he's excommunicated. Um, uh, is Michael VIII in 1282, and, and, um, and um, the Pope at the time declares the Union null. Um, but uh, he never actually, and Michael VIII, the Byzantine emperor, never repudiated the, uh, the, um, the union. The point of all this, by the way, is that this is all, again, I go back to balance of power politics. At this point, the Byzantine empire is very weak. It needs allies. That was the real reason that uh, Michael VIII went and signed the union in the first place. And everybody knew it, which is why they rejected it. So what happens is with these, these two union councils and the second one, 
Um, there'll probably be one on this one, definitely. Council of, another episode, single episode on the Council of Florence, uh, Ferrara, Florence. Uh, in 1439, uh, this was an attempt initially by Eugenius IV uh, to counter the conciliarism of another count, another council that was being held at Basel at the same time. But in the same way, this is in the 1430s, this is when Constantinople's on its last legs. Uh, most of its empire is gone. The Ottoman Turks have surrounded it. And the Emperor John VIII comes to Italy seeking military aid again, this time against the Ottoman Turks. This time, however, there was much more of a debate over the issues, things like the Filioque, papal authority, stuff like that. And they did sign a union. Uh, Le Tentorcelli was the name of the bull they signed. And it was signed by all of the Orthodox, uh, all but one of the Orthodox prelates and theologians would come with the emperor. But it was no more acceptable uh, to most Orthodox than the Council of Lyon had. And it was eventually repudiated, pre repudiated by, I think, basically everyone who had originally signed it, except for Cardinal Bassarion and Cardinal uh, Isidore of Kiev, who remained in union with the Latin Council. In other words, uh, again, you could see this as an imposition of Latin doctrine in exchange for military aid, which, by the way, was not true. The, the you know, popes who called these councils weren't thinking in those terms. Uh, Eugenius IV did call for a crusade uh, to try to help the uh, Byzantines after uh, Florence, uh, uh, Council of Florence ended, got wiped out <laughs> by the Ottomans, uh, didn't do any good. But again, if you were Orthodox, you wouldn't see it that way. And so I include that there for that reason. And then finally, you know, was there any other interaction that might have been, you know, um, less depressing than well, more interaction, genuine interaction in terms of culture or those sorts of things. Only a, only a couple of examples, and they're rare. People Historians tend to like this because these people seem to be more, you know, tolerant than their contemporaries. But, you know, um, there was a lot of mutual incomprehension. Uh, one of the big problems going back to the 11th century was lack of effective communication. Um, a um, a uh, theologian named uh, Humbert of the Romans who was a you know, Latin um, Catholic uh, writer, complained that during the Council of Lyon in the 13th century, that no one in the papal curia was capable of translating correspondence coming from Constantinople, because they didn't have Greek. Uh, conversely, by that point, most Greek theologians didn't know Latin theology at all. And of course, you know, uh, the Latin church is developing their own sophisticated theology at that point in scholasticism. Uh, one who did, who became knowledgeable about Latin theology, was a man named John Beccos, who, was, uh, who accompanied um, the emperor to the Council of Yon in 1274, um, eventually became patriarch at one point of Constantinople. He actually studied uh, thinkers like Augustine and Bodithius, and he came to believe that the Latin expression of the Filioque clause had roots in some Greek fathers. And he went to his, he went to his grave uh, maintaining the validity of the union of the churches even after he was exiled and excommunicated for it. And in fact, this, this, to this day, this is seen as a great triumph of orthodoxy in the orthodox world. They condemned John Beckles and some of his confreres. Um, he's one of the most learned of these people. There were others that are sometimes called Latino frones. This is, a, this is actually a slur in Greek. Latino frones means uh, literally Latin-minded, meaning you've been contaminated by Latin theology. Um, and... Um, there's a sort of <clears throat> parallel here because you have this movement in um, in the 14th century arising in the Orthodox world called Hesychism. This is a, a movement that stressed mystical experience of God. And uh, the main ex exponent of this, if you don't know who this is, Gregory Palamas. He's a saint in the Orthodox Church. This is very important for them, uh, for modern uh, Orthodoxy. <clears throat> um, he had a, a famous opponent, a guy named Barlam of Calabria, uh, who was more of a humanist and more rationalistic in his, his theological thinking. And um, he, he basically accused Palamas of heresy, but there was a, a council held about this, and he was condemned. He had to uh, you know, recant his, his uh, condemnations of Palamas. Um, and he left when settled in Italy and entered communion with Rome. Uh, but more influential, perhaps, were the Kidones brothers, uh, Demetrios and Prokhoros, uh, Kidones uh, Demetrios was a theologian and scholar who translated many Latin works into Greek, in particular making the work of uh, Thomas Aquinas accessible uh, to Greeks, really, uh, for the first time in some ways, while his brother, was a, Prokhoros, was a monk uh, on Mount Athos, both of whom, by the way, were, were uh, condemned uh, by the, for their opposition to Palamas. 
but uh, only Demetrios of the two actually he entered in communion with Rome and, and died uh, in communion with the Roman Church. And Demetrios was a very key figure in the West because he would eventually settle in Italy, uh, in Venice, and open an academy there where he would teach Greek to Latins. And so people began learning Greek for the first time in many, many places for many centuries. And it's also crucial that he made um, those translations of Aquinas because it led to um, a much better knowledge among some Greek thinkers of, uh, of Aquinas' work. Uh, even among his detractors, uh, one of his detractors, one of Aquinas's, one of, uh, uh, of the Latin church's great detractors was uh, the Bishop Mark of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus. Uh, Bishop Mark of Ephesus was the lone dissenter among the Orthodox at the Council of Florence. Even he respected the work of Aquinas. If you don't know, by the way, Aquinas, one of the reasons why is that when you look at Aquinas closely, he quotes St. Augustine a lot as a source uh, in his, his, uh, his uh, Summa, um, the Latin Fathers in general, the Bible. But he also quotes uh, Dionysius, the Arabhagite, the pseudo-Dionysius, the Eastern theologian. So he has some influence there. That's probably the reason there's some affinity. And there have been a few scholars who've also suggested that in the later Middle Ages, there were there were there was some interchange between Palamism, Palamite theologians, uh, Palamite thinking, or at least some of this thinking was appreciated by um, Franciscan theologians. Again, this makes sense. The Franciscans are a little more mystical, less rationalistic than Dominicans, who did not like Palamism for that reason. Um, and whereas these um, Franciscans apparently found Palamas continual to their theology. Again, these are rare examples, but it did happen. Uh, and of course, uh, things will change, by the way, just to you know, bridge this all off with the fall of Constantinople, because that will mean a shift. You know, Constantinople's gone as an independent actor. And so there won't be any, a chance, really, for there to be any Latinization uh, of the Orthodox Church there after, afterwards. So kind of, we'll stop there in the 15th century and start again in the early modern period in the next episode. But to wrap all this up, so, you know, what is all this, you know, sum all this up? Well, again, you do have this, there is some of this Latinization happening because of the claims of the Roman Church, right? Because, not only because of its authority, but this, it's a sort of total package. Uh, it's not as if um, Gregory VII thinks that the authority of the church as an institution is somehow separate from its traditions. They both go together in his mind, which is why you see so many Latins think that, well, okay, when you accept the authority of the church, you have to go accept the authority of its customs and traditions. Uh, except, of course, where, where those traditions are really ancient and have that sort of venerable antiquity. Greeks, even though they really don't like each other, again, there's not a lot of imposition in terms of liturgy and stuff like that. There is in terms of government. That's definitely something <laughs> the medieval church, medieval Roman church, and ever since then has insisted upon uh, until Vatican II, um, but not as much there, unless, of course, unless, of course, it was in places where, again, I mentioned Eastern Europe partly for two reasons. One, it doesn't have the antiquity. You know, the Slavic rites don't have the antiquity uh, of the Roman rite. They also, of course, I, I'm guessing they saw them as, again, it's weird. The Byzantines saw the Latins as backward, and then later in the Middle Ages, the Latin, I guess, I think the Latins saw the Slavics as kind of backward, perhaps. Again, I don't know that for a fact. Um, and in fact, you could, you know, you could almost argue that in some ways um, there's, because there, you know, there's almost in some ways as much intolerance toward other Western rites. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the Hispanic or the Mozarabic rite and certain other rites, uh, uses in Italy and places like this. Um, but in general, one of the things to keep in mind here is that though the Roman church has become, becomes a big legal body in the Middle Ages, it doesn't really have the wherewithal to impose like that, like you know, to impose one liturgy. It just didn't have the, the material, the, the material wealth to do that. It doesn't have the institutional uh, wherewithal anyway. Um, and, um, and so you have this, uh, you know, you have this happening in spots, but it's not a constant thing. And of course, with the example of the Armenians and to lesser extent, the, uh, the uh, Maronites, again, in some places, this seems to have been at least... Um, um, on the part of the Armenians and probably to a certain extent on the part of the Maronites, uh, voluntary, right? Like you're, you're making an alliance with the Latins, basically, uh, and, and that's what happens that way. And that's why, again, why it, was, why it didn't work, the same sort of mentality with the Byzantines. They couldn't stomach uh, being, you know, politically, uh, I don't think they could stomach being politically uh, um, subordinate to the West 
Uh, that's why, you know, trading, you know, exchanging, you know, accepting some Latin customs, accepting the fact that they're, um, the filioque was acceptable, was, you know, just a, a, a deadly betrayal for them. Uh, which again, that's the, that's the very thing at issue. I, and that's why I come back to this, is that you really have, um, there's a difference between the Latinization of the Byzantines that took place so far as it did and the Latinization of those other churches. And the big thing is, of course, that the Greeks had a, you know, a rival sort of, um, you know, um, ecclesiastical um, imperialism in mind. And by uh, rival ecclesiastical imperialism, what I mean is both the Byzantines and the Romans and the Latins thought that their traditions were universally superior. And um, again, if you want to see the Latins being more aggressive in doing that, I suppose you could say that. But again, you saw in the case of the Armenians, they tried to impose a certain, uh, you know, certain tradition on them as well. Um, difference, of course, that the, the Byzantines were, of course, under attack from the Islamic world and eventually ground them down, along, of course, with attacks from the West, which, again, that's depressing. But uh, again, there's a, re- there's a difference, I think, in the, the reasoning for, you know, if, uh, the Latinization there, um, which, again, uh, is this something that, um, you know, uh, I mean, excuse anything, any, any side has done in all this, but again, I don't think, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think the Latinization of the, of, the, uh, of the Middle Ages is quite what we think of it in the modern world, in the modern context. I think that's, that's because it'll be a change in the Roman Church in the 19th and 20th centuries, and I'll get to that. Um, but basically, it had to do, I think, with balance of power versus the churches, but also with political, with um, within, you know, uh, with uh, temporal politics uh, when this did happen. And so we can kind of see this as the working out of, you know, different theories of authority in the church and to a certain degree. Um, and so, and one of which, and this is my point, I'm not trying to exculpate uh, uh, Rome totally, but again, this was not unique uh, to Rome in that regard. So that's the end of this episode uh, in the series on Latinization. Next time, we'll take a look at the early modern period. We will talk about, well, we'll talk about several things. We'll talk about um, um, influence of uh, the Council of Trent, um, the Latinization, which will accelerate in churches um, like the, uh, the Maronite Church. We'll talk about its influence in the Slavic world with the Union of Brest, and things of that nature a little bit. We'll also talk about um, papal um, papal attitudes as they emerge in the early modern period. Particularly, we'll talk about the uh, the uh, papal encyclical by Pope Benedict the Fourteenth in the 18th century called Alate Sunt, and where he lays out um, you know his his vision of what the other rights are within the Catholic Church, which is an interesting document, and talk about some of this stuff up through um, up through basically the time of the French Revolution. So. Uh, up to the end of the 18th century. So early modern Latinization next time on Controversies in Church History. Once again, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Please go to YouTube, uh, Spotify, go to uh, Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Uh, Let me know what you think if you like this series. Um, This episode will drop first for our patrons on Patreon. So if you want to get this stuff early, you can go donate there if you like. It's as little as five bucks a month. It'll help out a little bit. But uh, uh, thank you to my patrons again. Hope you enjoyed this series. Uh, Thank you all again. God bless you all. Uh, See you next time.